Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, back to Isaiah chapter 40. And you'll find this on page 599. And we have been looking especially uh, at the uh, opening verses uh, together over the last number of weeks. And we're going to cover uh, the rest of the chapter tonight, but especially looking at the end of this chapter, verses 27 to the end. But we'll look at it in terms of the context of the chapter as a whole. And so we'll begin our reading back at verse 1 of Isaiah uh, uh, um, on page 599. <clears throat> comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. 
He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As mentioned over the last uh, number of weeks, we have been looking at this chapter of Isaiah, and we have been talking about it as a, a message of God's comfort. And from the opening verses, uh, uh, the opening words of this chapter, it has uh, drawn our attention to that theme, the announcement of comfort that is to come to the people of Israel who would be humiliated uh, on account of their sins and ultimately go into exile in the future. But to them who were faced with the uh, repercussions of their choices, to those who were uh, feeling the effects of turning away from the Lord, this message comes to them that God is a God who is not done with them, but rather he still extends to them a message of comfort. And the message of comfort ultimately is based on the fact that, uh, is focused on the fact that God is coming. That, uh, as it said there in, in verse 9, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And so the, the whole message here is to turn their attention back on God, to realize that in spite of their situation, God is a God in whom they are to turn to and to put their trust in. And this evening, we want to come back and look at this theme of comfort and to see how uh, the message continues uh, to unfold. And we want to see that because God is incomparable, uh, he is the incomparable God in terms of his wisdom and his power and his being, he is one in whom we can have hope and find strength. And we want to look at uh, these, uh, this thought of the incomparable God uh, in three thoughts. 
We want to think about the people's complaint. We want to think about the prophet's consideration. And then finally, we want to think about the believer's confidence. Well, first we have uh, the people's complaint. After speaking all this about comfort, all this uh, message of hope and confidence, uh, we might uh, think that this is all good. But when we come to the end of this chapter, you'll notice that we get to have a, a window into understanding the audience to whom this message is being addressed to. Because when we come to verse 27, uh, we are given something of the people's complaint. And we find them somewhere between struggling to believe and becoming cynically uh, defiant, as one person has said. These people are uh, struggling based on their circumstances about what they can trust or what they can depend on when it comes to God. And you see their complaint there in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob? Uh, and here the expression is given to what their complaint is. They, their complaint is, is that my way is hidden from the Lord. When it talks about my way, it's talking about their experience. In other words, the people of Israel feel like God is ignorant of what they're going through. That God doesn't even know what they're going through. It seems to have slipped his mind because all of this has come upon them and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And so any mention of God, any mention of the comfort that God will bring, any mention of the preparation of a highway for God to come, behold your God, meets with this mindset of saying, my God doesn't even seem to know what we're going through right now. There's a complaint here based on their experience. And even when the mention of God comes up, it is filtered through their experience. And they say that it seems as though God has forgotten about them. He's ignorant of what they're going through. And as a result, they only shake their heads when someone speaks about the Lord. But then secondly, we see their complaint not only in terms of saying my way is hidden from the Lord, but their complaint is expressed as well as my right is disregarded uh, before my God. My right, that's the language of something of a legal case. In other words, they are complaining that they have a cause, they have a case, and it's being disregarded by God. He's not doing anything to come to their aid. God has let this happen to them. They have been humiliated. They are subject uh, to uh, their neighbors. They have been defeated as a nation. In the future, they would be. And as a result, their experience is one that causes them to look at God in a certain way, where they're now saying, my cause, my case, isn't even being taken up by God. Rather, it seems like my issue is being disregarded. And so as uh, we come to the end of this chapter here, the people actually are expressing a complaint. And the prophet here puts this at the forefront, ultimately, to address it. This is where they're at. They are feeling as though God is not there, that God doesn't seem to be paying attention to them. And any mention of God is filtered through that experience. But this is, this is strikingly important because what we're seeing here in the people of Israel, even when their nation is crumbled, even when their uh, kingdom is defeated, is, is that they're struggling with not so much the existence of God, 
but rather they're struggling with the character of that God. Notice again what it says in verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. It's not as though they're disregarding the fact that there is a God. They address him as my God. It's not an issue of disregarding the fact that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one that they're talking about. But rather it is one in which they're wrestling with the God who is. How can we trust in this God based on what we have gone through? And oftentimes, that's where the real issue is. That when we begin to scratch, it's not so much the theoretical arguments for the existence of God. Does God exist? But rather the real struggle comes down to the God who does exist. Can I trust in him? Do I know the character of that God? And to be able to trust in that God in spite of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so we see something of the complaint of the people here. It's one in which their experience has shaped and controls their understanding of God. And as a result, Isaiah, the message of Isaiah here brings that to the forefront, ultimately to dispel of it, to show how it is uh, uh, unfounded and not right. And so we have uh, the people's complaint. But we are given something of a consideration in this chapter about the God who is. If we're going to be corrected in our understanding of God, then we need to be able to understand how he uh, reveals himself. Not every question uh, is looking for information, is it? Or looking for new information that is not already known. You young people, uh, maybe your mom or your dad asks you questions from time to time. Maybe they asked you to do something. They asked you to clean up the shoe room or to to put away the, the clothes or to make your bed. And then maybe your parent asks you or they pull you into the room and they say, did you make your bed? And they look at the bed and it's obviously not made. Or they look at the, the shoe room and the shoes aren't put away. And they ask you a question, but it's not necessarily that they're looking for new information as much as they're trying to impress something upon you so that you are living in light of that reality. They're trying to bring something to your attention. Perhaps it is uh, the fact that maybe you haven't followed through in what they asked or to bring to your attention the state of the room itself. And when you look at Isaiah 40, it's a series of questions that are really rhetorical questions, but they're really meant to impress upon the people how they are thinking about God in order to draw attention that their working definition of God doesn't match what the scriptures say about God that they are working on a certain assumption about the God who is, but it's not actually comporting with what God's word teaches. And so all of these questions, and there's a lot of questions in Isaiah 40, all of them are just drawing attention to this fact, how do you understand God? And when we rightly understand God, it has a way of correcting the way that we look at our situation. And so after addressing the people's complaint, why do you say these things? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Now we are given a right consideration of the God who is. And in verse 28, it tells us about uh, this God. 
We are told uh, four things that we can uh, extrapolate about God in these verses. The first is that the Lord is the everlasting God, that God himself is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is not even bound by time. He is above time. He has no limitations in terms of time itself, but rather he is the one who always exists. He will always be and will always govern all things. He is the everlasting God. Not only is he described in terms of being eternal, but he is described as the creator of the ends of the earth. This is something that was uh, stressed even earlier uh, in the chapter, back in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? The eternal God who is, is also the creator. That God created the heavens and the earth. What difference If God created everything. What difference if the world just was eternal? Or if the world just popped into being of itself? Does it really matter what a person believes about the beginning? Does it really matter that God created all things? And here what Isaiah is highlighting is is that this is one of the most foundational truths. Of understanding belief. And our understanding of God and who he is. That God created all things. He is the creator. And that all of our understanding about God comes as an understanding that he has brought into existence all that is. It's part of what makes him incomparable uh, in this whole chapter. E.J. Young, a commentator, writes the following. He says, in our thinking about God, the infinite distance between God and the creature must ever be kept in mind. To break down that distinction between creator and creature is to fall into idolatry. And so it might sound like a very basic or a very foundational truth. And it is a foundational truth. And yet it is so, so important that we see that everything falls into one of two categories. There is the creator who is God and there is everything else that falls under the category of creation. Everything else is created by God. And so here these questions, who has measured these things? Who has weighed out the mountains? Who has done these things? It's drawing our attention back to the God who is, that we would see him as the creator of everything that we see around us and to look at him in that light. And so we get these repeated questions about what do you compare the living God with? You notice it there, uh, for instance, in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what will you compare him with? You see, at least some people in Israel at this time were comparing the Lord with other things. That's why the question is being asked. And why in verse 19 it says, an idol. Some people were saying, well, the Lord is like one of many gods. There's the God of Israel, and then there's the gods of the nations. And our God is simply one of those gods. But here the the question, this rhetorical question, what are you even comparing the creator with? Something that was ultimately created by man. 
A craftsman casts it and covers it with gold and silver. He sets it up so that it cannot move. An idol. You're going to compare the creator of all things with something that was fashioned by the imagination of man. The two don't even compare with one another. And so here, the the question is really highlighting the, the foolishness of trusting or comparing God even with the idols of the nations, the gods of the nations. The Lord is not simply one of many higher powers. He is alone the creator of the heavens of the earth, and everything else falls under that uh, category of creation. In verse 21, it says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? This is elemental. This is the most uh, uh, vital uh, doctrine to highlight about creation, that God creates all things and that he is alone God and worthy uh, of worship. Later on in verse 25, you see the repetition in the questioning, to whom then will you compare me? If some are going to compare God with idols, with the gods of the nations, others might compare him uh, with even the heavens uh, themselves. Notice it says, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? There always was a temptation uh, for the people to worship the heavens. Uh, You can see many groups that did worship the sun and the moon and the stars. And that was a temptation even for the people of Israel. And it was something that they fell into. And even at this time in history, the people of Israel were guilty, guilty of worshiping the stars. Or at least engaging in that form of worship. And so here this question is really challenging them. Look up in the heavens and see who created those. Who created those? They fall under the category of creation. As as impressive as the stars are, the sun and how vast the world is, we are to still realize it falls under the category of creation. And it's not to be worshipped but rather that it is to bear witness to the fact that there is a creator. John Calvin makes an interesting observation about this. He says this, this exhortation to look, lift up our eyes on high and to see, it is a call to contemplate and that we are to contemplate God's works and to see his majesty. But Calvin makes an interesting point because he says when you look at the beasts of the field, the animals of the earth, God has fixed their posture so that their heads are down. The cattle of the field look down. But God created man and woman erect with the ability to lift up their heads and to contemplate the majesty of God's works. There's a difference between man and beast. God has created us for worship, to be able to know and to enjoy God to behold his works and to glorify God and delight in him. And so here's this exhortation. What are you comparing me to? Are you going to compare me to the idols of the nations with their wood and their stone? Are you going to compare me to Baal or to Moloch? Are you going to compare me to the God of Ray? These are just figments of your imagination. They have no power. They're wood and stone. Are you going to compare me to the sun and the moon? Are you going to compare me to the stars? 
Even these things are the work of my handiwork. I created them. And so all of this stresses the fact that God is the creator. The God that we are talking about is over all and alone is worthy of worship. So who is this God? He is the everlasting God. He is the creator God. He is the all-powerful God. He does not grow faint or weary. Unlike us, we do. If you miss one meal, uh, you may notice it. If you miss one night's sleep, you might notice it. Uh, we, we become weary when we don't have what we need to thrive and to flourish. But that's because we're creatures. But God is constant. He does not grow weary. He does not become tired. His, his uh, even time itself can make us slacken. But the Lord is not like us. He is always strong and always able to accomplish his will. All of that is important. Because what we gaze upon may cause us to think that something else is all powerful. Again, you look through this chapter and what is it that the people are gazing at? The nations. You turn to verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. You think about a scale. Any weight on a scale is going to have an impact on the scale. But the fine dust doesn't even register. And here is the point is that God is saying that even the nations themselves cannot affect. They have no ability to overthrow God's works. They seem intimidating. But as God himself goes on to say in verse 22, that he sits over all and he governs his creation. In verse 23, uh, he brings the princes to nothing and the rulers of the earth to emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, but when he blows on them, they wither and they go away like the stubble. Just as their efforts are taking root, just as their plans are starting to come together, the Lord has a way of thwarting their purposes, and they're done. And so the nations themselves are not all powerful. They are not the greatest concern. But rather we are to know that the God, who is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he is all powerful, and he does not grow weary or faint. But then finally, this God is also unsearchable. Back in verse 13 and 14, it says, Who measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? To whom did he consult? Or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And now here in verse 28, it's highlighting that his understanding is unsearchable. That's not trying to say that we can't know or understand God. But what it is saying is, is that we cannot comprehend God completely. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. For the simple reason that the finite, the creature, cannot contain the infinite. That we are limited and that God is infinite. And so it is beyond our ability to understand his wisdom. That his ways are past our ability to search out. Maybe you're sitting here wondering what all of this has to do with anything. What's the relevance of thinking about the, the character or the being of God. It sounds so abstract. But as Derek Thomas points out, the more we know and understand about God, the stronger we will be. And the way that we think about God is going to shape the way that we live in this world. 
if we look at things through the lens of our own experience and if we think about God on the basis of our own reasoning or on the basis of our own feeling, we will have a very limited ability to trust in him and we'll have a very limited view of comfort. But what Isaiah is calling us to is to realize who God is. What has been told you from the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be, and there was. God is the everlasting God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is the all-wise God who knows the end from the beginning. And all of these things are to shape the way that we think about God. Israel had lost a sense of the greatness of God. And when we lose a sense of the greatness of God, we lose our moorings of finding hope and comfort in this world. And so their complaint is evidencing that. My way is hidden from God. He doesn't even know what we're going through. And the response is, is he is the all-wise God. He knows exactly what is going on. My right has been disregarded by my God. And what is being communicated to them is that God will accomplish his purposes. He has not disregarded his people, but will bring his promises to completion. So there is the complaint. There is the consideration. But then finally, there is the confidence that they are to find. When we recognize who God is, then we can know the strength that he gives. It goes on to say, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no strength, he increases. Who has no might, he increases strength. The truth is, is, is that Israel's weakness, their faintness, was not simply physical, is it? Their faintness is because they were laboring as fools. As it said at the beginning of the chapter, they were those who had been made warfare with the Lord. They were those who were made weary on account of their sins. They were dealing with the toil of working against God. And that's ultimately where we all find ourselves. The writer of Proverbs says, uh, the labor of a fool only wearies himself or herself. It only tires oneself when we live against God's wisdom and against God's ways. And if it's true that we have all pursued our own course and living foolishly opposed to God, it means that we have all uh, been toiling against God. The real question then is, are we tired of fighting against God's ways? Are we tired of sin itself? Of living in a world that is under the domain of sin? Are we people that are weary of living tempted by sin, by the presence of sin? Are we people that long to be rid of sin? Because only when we recognize our problem are we going to look outside of ourselves for strength and for hope, for power and for comfort. But that is what God is promising here. Comfort, my people. Your God is coming. Your warfare is ended. And the word of God will stand forever. God is coming. And he will give strength to those who are weary. That God is coming to bring them new life. To restore them who are wearied by sin. It is only when we acknowledge our weakness that we will look to God for strength. But the good news is that when we look to God, we see a God who is able to restore us from our sins. 
a God who has come to deal with the problem of our own foolishness, and a God who is able to overcome our folly and to save us even from ourselves. That's why Paul himself would say, my power is made, God would say, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul would conclude, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest in me. What hope is there then when we've been living in sin? What hope is there when we have lived foolishly? It's in knowing that the incomparable God is able to overcome where I have put myself. It is knowing that the incomparable God is able to do what he has promised. He is able to forgive iniquity. It is knowing that the incomparable God will be faithful and the word of God will stand forever. To those who are weary, he will give strength. But notice at the end to whom it is that God gives his strength to. It says uh, to him who waits uh, on the Lord in verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. To wait on the Lord is, is to hope. It is to cast oneself on the Lord, to depend on him ultimately in our wearied strength, in our wearied state, knowing that our strength is to come from him. And then notice the three images that are given. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, meaning that they will rise up and do something that beforehand would not be possible. That they will, they will rise up because they will have a strength that goes beyond themselves. Because they're not depending on themselves. But living depending on their God. Their hope is in God and not in themselves. They will continue to press on because their hope is in God. They will be sustained. And so they will run. But they will also continue to walk. They won't faint even over the long haul. They will be sustained in their course. The Apostle Paul captures this when he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because their hope was in a God of all grace. And their knowledge of salvation from sin in and through Jesus Christ. Their hope was not in themselves. It's not their own wisdom. It's not their own efforts. It's not their own goodness. It is knowing that God has come in Christ. They have beheld their God. They have seen how he has shepherded them by caring for them. They have seen how God's promises have been fulfilled. They see it all coming together in Christ. And no matter what comes, they're clinging to Christ. Because they see in him the hope of God. In him they see salvation. And in him they are sustained. Have you heard who God is? He is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the all-powerful God who does not grow weary. He is the God whose wisdom is beyond our understanding. And in him... We can hope because he's the God who raises from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would shape our understanding of the God who is. 
Lord, we confess that oftentimes we can have a very small view of our God, that we can uh, think so little of uh, the importance of these doctrines of God as all as the creator, as eternal, as all-wise and all-powerful. Help us, Lord, then to be people who live on the basis of our understanding of who you are and are able to live in the midst of trying situations and trying circumstances. Go before us and help us uh, to, to be um, uplifted, uh, to mount up with wings like eagles, to be able to soar in dependence on your spirit and to be sustained in a lifetime of uh, faithfulness. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.